You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello and welcome to WTF with Mark Maron. No, it isn't. It's Wonder Cupboard. Hello. My name's Ian. My name is Eleanor. And what will we be discussing this episode, Eleanor? We will be talking about air conditioning. Oh. Which is particularly distressing given that it's incredibly hot right now in London (laughs) and I am dying. So last episode we talked about refrigeration, which I cavalierly defined as refrigerating stuff. Um, (laughs) Well, this episode we talk about air conditioning, which in my metaphysics for this month is refrigerating people. Yes. <laughs> it's not exactly how it works. No. But hey. As discussed last episode, don't put people in the fridge. Exactly. It's a bad thing. Unless they are dead. That's yeah. actually quite an important that, bit of our story. That can be convenient. Oh, okay. I look forward to that. That sounds cheerful. <laughs> This is, of course, part two in our spring-summer collection. Indeed. Uh, The first episode, as previously stated, was on refrigeration and ice. Yes. A lot of stuff on ice. If you're you're interested in ice, and who isn't in this kind of temperature, (laughs) um, have a listen to the previous episode, episode 16, Ice. But this is episode 17, Air Conditioning. So why don't you kick us off? I'm Uh, so smooth, this episode. I know, right? It must be that ice... Yeah, you're you're going all like partridgey. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll dial it back. <laughs> there is no good way to be like Alan Partridge. There is no good way. Um, sorry to anyone who is not British and doesn't understand who Alan Partridge is. But if you, you know, if you can listen to this, you can watch Alan Partridge shows, and you should. Anyway, history time. <laughs> From the dawn of time, people have sometimes felt a tinsy bit too hot. (laughs) And of course, being the hustlers that we are as a species, we have tried to find solutions for it. So this has come mostly in two forms. One is putting yourself in contact with natural cold things, like snow. The other is blowing air on yourself. Or sometimes doing both. (laughs) Because <laughs> why not treat yourself? So we're, we're going to start with the blowing air solution mm-hmm. and talk about fans, which are probably the oldest form of air conditioning. Like you can see how that can be achieved with just a, a leaf if you want to, right? Like you, you can fan yourself very easily. In terms of actual documented history of fans, we know that they have been used in China as early as 3,000 years ago. And they were as properly like made devices to fan yourself. And they were made of bird feathers. And this would be uh, like a handheld. Yes, exactly. This was also the case in ancient Egypt. Some lovely gold fans have been found in Tutankhamun's tomb with the remains of ostrich feathers attached mm. to them. And there's also an association with fans and feathers in, in the Hindi language. So even though we're not sure... Old Indian fans must have been made of uh, bird feathers as well. As a lot of you probably know, fans are a big part of Chinese culture, right? 
And that's because they became favorited by the higher classes. And then they became bigger, (laughs) 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 essentially. So rather than fanning themselves, the Chinese higher classes thought, why don't we get someone else to fan us? Ah, clever, right? So they invented the ceiling fan. Okay. Because at the time, a ceiling fan had to be moved by someone else, right? Because there was no other way of moving things than when people or animals did so. Mm. So ceiling fans were... So in, in a description from the period, they were described as doors hanging from the ceiling. Okay. So you can imagine what that looked ah, like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a big it's a big flappy thing being pulled up and down by people the whole time. Exactly. Ah. And this fan was actually a very successful design. It was very durable. In colonial India, so we're talking like thousands of years later, a similar design was still used and was then exported to nineteenth century America. So in India, this kind of ceiling fan was called a uh, punka. And the, the, the idea of the door hanging from the ceiling is still quite an appropriate description, except they also had fringes on them and they were quite elaborately decorated sometimes. They were pulled by a rope uh, and then released to give a soothing breeze to those who could afford it. Apparently, there were two kinds of drafts. So there was uh, a Bombay pull, and the Bengal pool. Oh. So the Bombay pool was vigorous. So you would get a good like... Oh, okay, right. Of yeah. water, of air. <laughs> well, the Bengal pool was a bit more relaxed. So oh, more okay. of a gentle mm. sea breeze. Okay. So the job of pulling the rope was fulfilled by punka coolies. So it was an actual job. Like it was, There was a servant or a group of servants whose job was just to operate the punkas. People um, with big arms. Yes, I probably. <laughs> if they're doing that all day. I mean, they were mostly men, obviously. And there was a whole culture surrounding punka coolies. So every summer you would have like large groups of men migrating into cities from the countryside to be hired as punka coolies. In 1902, the Times of India estimated that between... 10,000 and 15,000 men moved to Kolkata for punka season. Wow. <laughs> and they would, you know, they would live together, they would travel together because it was easier and they often came from the same places. And there were specialised brokers that would find jobs for punka coolies and get like a sliver of their earnings right. that way. So they would put them in touch with people who needed someone to action a punka. I love the idea of, a, of a, a, the manual fan agent Guys, okay, look, I've got this amazing job on the horizon. Um, It's not signed off just yet, but you're going to absolutely love what's going on here. There is one uh, downside... Yeah, it's gonna be Bombay pool. I, I know, I know you don't like the. I know, I know you're more of a Bengal. St- yeah, okay, no, I, yeah, you have your art, yes, but you know, there's just not a lot of Bengal pool requirement out here. Like, I'm doing my best for you. All right, all right, guys. Do you think they would get auditioned as well? I think so. I think so, definitely. <laughs> Could you try it again, but with more emotion? <laughs> really, really... It's hot, it, it's hot in here, you know? <laughs> and go. 
One thing that they did have in common with auditions is that often they would be ogled by um, <laughs> by their servants. Like I read um, a very horny description of a punka coolie at some oh, point. Wow. I'm like, mm, mm. don't know that that was very appropriate to treat no. your employees that way. So anyway, the punka setup was exported to the US. It was popular in colonial India, we were saying. So it was exported to the, the US. And the ceiling fans were also called punkas. So it was a direct reference to that, right? Even though, of course, 19th century America, guess who was operating the punkas? Yeah. It was enslaved people. It was a way for plantation owners to show off, you know, because you could just waste labor mm. on breeze. Yeah. But on the plus side, it was sometimes useful for the enslaved servants themselves because that was a good way to eavesdrop on conversations. So there's documentation that being for them to be in the room when dinners were happening and sometimes with guests from outside would be a way to gather information on where abolitionist movements um, had started the revolt in the area or, you know, if some of them were going to get sold, because obviously families sometimes were ripped apart that way. And so it was a way to know what was coming. Which doesn't mean that I'm condoning slavery. It just, yeah. It's just a part of mm. what happened at the time. And this went on basically until electric fans, you know. Um, so anyway, so that was fans. Another way that people would blow cold there on themselves <laughs> like it seems like a simple thing but there are so many ways to do it um <laughs> was by designing buildings that would channel air and create a pleasant current or sometimes extracting cold air from caves so in our in one of our first episodes probably the first episode we we're talking about galileo right mm. do you remember that yeah i do so he he almost died at some point because uh an early air conditioning system blew in some like somehow toxic air from a cave in a place where he was staying. Yeah, they had the the the, the house had sort of piping down to a or to a nearby very cold cave, but yeah, some sort of noxious gas had been released in the cave network, and it it actually killed quite a lot of people in that building, didn't it? Yeah, but, but not Galileo. Uh, but there are they're not all uh, lethal. <laughs> all these systems. Some of them are probably a bit, bit better thought out. Um, so one structure that uh, was invented in the Middle East was the wind catcher, which was basically a tower that was sucking wind from the outside and circulate the air around the main building so the interior would be nice and cool. Uh, they probably originated in Iran, but they can be found in traditional architecture in the whole of the Middle East, in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. Other architectural solutions include step wells, which I have just discovered what they are because I'm ignorant. <laughs> I don't know. It was, step it was a, wells. I've never. It, it sounds like an exercise machine. Yeah, but they're actually like one of the most wonderful um, architectural things <laughs> that I have ever seen. Okay. Uh, so I can show you a photo if you want, even though it's a, it's an audio medium, but I think it's worth looking at. And we're going to put it on Instagram. So they were basically like. They were wells, very wide, and with stairwells going down to the bottom of the well. Yeah. 
So it's an Indian design. It's a traditional Indian uh-huh. design. And that meant that um, whatever the, um, the level of water in the well, you could always reach it because there were stairs going down. Okay. And these stairs were designed so as to look pretty because why not? And mm. so there are still some amazing examples of these sep wells um, that you can see in India, if, if that's your thing. Uh, it's my thing. <laughs> um, one of the uh, pleasant side effects of having this much water there was that by evaporating, it would cool the buildings in the surrounding areas. Oh. So there was also an air conditioning device. We're, uh, we're going to put a photo of that on Instagram. So if you want to see what a step well looks like, and I recommend it because it's really cool. <laughs> it's beautiful, <laughs> it's isn't it? It's beautiful. like an Escher type mm, thing. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, go to our Instagram account. It's at Wondercupboard Podcast on Instagram, which is on your phone, probably. <laughs> probably. It, it might not be. And, and, and if not, that's fine. But yes, we're there on Instagram. We're also on Twitter at Wondercupboard. Yeah. We tweet. You can also tweet to us. That's how it works. It's Why good. not? Yeah. yeah. You could also email us if you wanted to. Hello at wondercovered.com. Yeah. That's all our all our mediums that you can contact us on and interact with us upon. <laughs> so anyway, where were we? Stepwells. Stepwells. An other feature of traditional Indian architecture that is also incredibly beautiful is the, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Jali which is basically a perforated facade that stands in front of the full facade of a building, also known as a perforated skin exterior in architecture. So they are quite visible on uh, traditional Indian uh, buildings and they they normally have quite intricate lattice work on the outside, mm-hmm. right? So it's quite decorative as well. Um, and what they did... What they do is they um, diffuse the daylight so that by the time the air gets to the actual facade of the building, it's cooler, essentially. And it also provides a walkway underneath that is shaded so people can um, move around big buildings that way. Again, I've got another photo for Ian's benefit because they're just really beautiful. Oh, yes, I can confirm dear listener that they are beautiful instagram (laughs) instagram that was just you know i love architecture it's it's been quite pleasant to explore these different things so this was you know lovely indian architecture um now we're going to talk about the romans who were not so aesthetically keen (laughs) Uh, romans were simple people they're quite quite a functional yeah group yeah and one of the functional things that they did was aqueducts. Mm. Big-ass aqueducts, right? So what having all these ways of channeling water around would do was that you could channel it around uh, the walls of houses. So you could cool them that way. Of course, that's rich people's houses. Just yeah. reminding everyone of <laughs> that every now and again um, to cool them down. Emperor Elaglabolus... <laughs> Um, Not one of the more famous emperors. No, I don't think he's done anything because he was too busy trying to find ways to stay cool in summer and (laughs) being generally a luxurious man. (laughs) Um, Because he elaborated this complicated system by which 
which I can see him very proud of, you know, like I picture him very just like luxurious and going, oh, I had my guys, you know, they um, they bring donkeys to the mountains and then they take down snow and then they make another big mountain next to my house and then I'm all cool. <laughs> like, this is literally what happened. Wow. <laughs> um, apparently it was incredibly inefficient. Like I can imagine Roman engineers just pulling their hair out <laughs> going we have you know we've got sewage in this city we've got uh, essentially bathrooms we've got um you know, the lovely roman baths with different temperatures and and underfloor um heating and all sorts of lovely things and you just fucking use donkeys to bring fucking <laughs> snow from the mountains the original nightmare client i think i preferred the <laughs> earlier one what you mean the test yeah i like i think i like that but okay but we've d- no i think yeah i think that's you the donkeys i thought were, <laughs> was actually i think you guys nailed it on the first go yeah okay yeah sure okay emperor yeah no problem <laughs> so let's talk about more modern aircon systems so Nowadays, the majority of our consystems come in the form of a box somewhere and some pipes blowing icy air above your colleague who works well wrapped in a blanket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know the colleague who's always talking about their sore neck? Yeah. That one. That one. Yeah. <laughs> so in the previous episode, we mentioned one of the first attempts to cool people by essentially refrigerating air. So that was a doctor who was uh, blowing air on ice, right? But that was not very influential so it's not it's barely part of the history of modern aircon the story of the you know box and pipe aircon is a very american story which starts in a very american way with an american president Uh the president in question was james garfield who died in a very american way by being shot in 1881 uh, it's a long tradition. He didn't die immediately. It took a few weeks before he died, uh, during which he was in bed. By the way, fun fact, one of the interventions that they tried to save him and to, to like speed up his healing process was to call Alexander Bell. So one of the people who invented the telephone. I mean, if you were going to call anyone, it would be Alexander <laughs> Bell. <laughs> nice. Um, so what he did was trying to extract the bullet with a magnet. Oh, okay. Um, it didn't work. Oh. But in the meantime, you know, it was it was really hot and the president was unwell. And so they concocted this device that blew air through cotton sheets soaked in ice water. Right. So, you know, it was a bit um, thrifty, but it did the job. And that kind of got into people's minds that cooling your house could be a nice thing I think I mean obviously there were already the ceiling fans and stuff but there was this idea that maybe electricity could do something for you mm-hmm. uh, because of the, you know at the same time electricity became more widespread and, and so on and so forth so electric fans appeared soon after and then the first air conditioning systems appeared as well in different places for different reasons, as usual. So one of them was Carnegie Hall, uh, which was cooled with a system based on ice in 1889 by someone called Alfred Wolf. 
And this Alfred Wolf later on came came up with probably the first air conditioning unit, uh, which was put in the dissection chamber of Cornell Medical College in New York. Hmm. Because, of course, it was full of corpses. Yeah. And it, that was useful to slow down the composition so that they could be dissected for longer. And this was in 1899, but didn't have much following. A most successful unit was designed by Willis Carrier in 1902, who at the time was 25 and worked in a printing press in New York. The problem they had was with humidity. In summer, it was just too high for the machinery. So he made this device that cooled air in pipes, immersed in water, and blew it out where all the machinery was. And by the way, Kerry is still a brand of air conditioning nowadays. So he started an empire that way. (laughs) And all because of a sweaty newspaper. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It took some time before he managed to actually build them. They worked for humans. Okay. (laughs) Um, But he did. So the first place where one of his systems was uh, installed was the Rivoli Theatre in New York that was built in 1917. So it was a contemporary building. And they installed the aircon system in 1925. And from then onwards, cinemas adopted air conditioning with a lot of enthusiasm. Mm. And they would advertise it. So you would have, you know, posters in the streets going, we are fully air conditioned, come see a movie here. Yeah, because it it essentially had to close during the summer months Yeah, uh, before, I I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, or at least there wasn't a lot of uptake. And that's how the summer blockbuster was born, essentially. So that's the beginning of how eventually we got the summer blockbuster because people would go like, wait a second, it's really hot out there. I don't have aircon in my <laughs> house because it's uh, 1930. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to spend at least 89 minutes somewhere <laughs> that isn't boiling. Yeah. Which, by the way, reminds me. In 2003, you know, there was the huge heat wave in, in Europe. Mm. And... In Italy, was really hot. And I come from Turin, which is, it's in the north, and it's basically encased in, well, there are mountains on one side, but there's the plain on the other. There is no, like, breeze coming from anywhere. So it's hot, it's really hot. And the top tip from the government was just go hang out in shopping malls. (laughs) (laughs) That was literally something that they said to people. It's health advice from the economy uh, division. Yeah. Um, and you would see like a lot of like slightly, you know, elderly people who didn't really go to shopping malls because it wasn't not part of their life. They just kind of sat there and just like, maybe I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna die this time. Um, what is this H and M? Oh, there was no H and M in in two thousand three. I remember when they opened. <laughs> I was very excited. I'm sure. I still have a dress that I bought that time. Exciting. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I remember 2003 heatwave, European heatwaves as well, because we were driving through France. We went to the south of France on our holiday, a very cute little family holiday. And we just got, for the first time ever, our first car with air conditioning. And it was unbelievably good timing. Yeah. We uh, stopped off at a service station on the way and we thought, I know, we'll just have lunch at the service station. We'll sit outside, it's nice and sunny, open the car doors and we're hit by just almost like a solid wall of heat. It was 42 degrees Celsius, which I refuse to translate into Fahrenheit. Good on you. A a silly way of measuring a temperature. (laughs) (laughs) So just putting that out there. And... 
yeah, it just hit us, and we ended up eating our lunch in the car. Happy holidays! Yeah. <laughs> Wonder cupboard. So one problem that air conditioning brought about was how cold should it be? In your own home, you can do whatever you like. But since the beginning, air conditioning was a prerogative of church spaces, you know, like cinemas. One worry in the US concerned schools. What was healthier for children to have fresh air or natural air, whatever the weather? Engineers were obviously pushing for air conditioning. In 1913, the New York State Commission on Ventilation was established <laughs> and declared that natural ventilation was better. Engineers didn't take it very well. In the years when the commission was writing the report, so that's between 1917 and 1923, when the report was published, the American Society of Heating and Ventilating Engineers established a laboratory in which they were researching the optimal temperature for air conditioning. Quantification was seen as a way to show people how this technology was useful. They saw it as a problem of Luddism, essentially. People didn't trust AC because it wasn't well known. After all, it was a new technology, so people would be a bit suspicious, right? One journalist at the time wrote, One of the engineers' most effective safeguards against loss of public confidence is the development of fixed rational standards and the determination of precise finite values that he may thus express himself with an exactness which ensures understanding. So apart from the awkward phrasing of the last bit, you ne- you know what they were I'm, getting at, right? I'm still processing that. <laughs> I think there are too many X in it. Is that what it is? <laughs> it's impressive. It's definitely impressive. I mean, it was a very definitely an engineered sentence. <laughs> a bit over-engineered, maybe. Under touch, yeah. Um, so in, in this lab that the engineers concocted, they first set out to study the chemical composition of air. Okay. Because, you know, they were engineers, so what else were they going to do? <laughs> like, were they going to work out exactly how much nicer being in an air conditioning environment was than sweating in the heat? Well, that's actually what they ended up doing, because okay. studying the chemical composition of the air is completely pointless. <laughs> You're <laughs> yeah. trying to just establish whether people are nice in the cold. I feel nice in the cold. Yeah. So that's exactly what they did. They just measured how comfortable people were in the most engineery way possible. <laughs> okay. So they developed a comfort chart. Okay, right. In which they charted at what combination of humidity and temperature people felt most comfortable. I kind of love it, to be honest. It, it does, like, because it does appeal to me. Yeah. <laughs> Engineers even went so far as to bend the words fresh air from their vocabulary because the the expression fresh air was associated with Luddites that were idealising the outdoors and were being anti-progress and anti-technological. So yes, ventilation had to become a science, which means it had to be standardised. And this standardisation had huge consequences, right? All clustered around the idea of thermal monotony. So what that, what is that? Until then, it had just been assumed that the best climate for people to live in was the natural one. 
colder in winter, hotter in summer. Of course, you would adapt by changing your clothes or, you know, seeking shelter. But no one had ever contended that seasons were bad. Mm. Well, thermal monotony is exactly that. It's the absence of seasons. It's the idealization of the absence of seasons. The idea that you should always live at the same optimal temperature year-round, which is what air conditioning seeks to achieve. Which is really freaky, if you think about it. Mm. It's like you're raising a huge part of human experience. Mm. You're just just kind of freezing yourself in time. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, it has been the kind of uh, psychological consequences of thermal monotony have been uh, studied and apparently they are quite severe in terms of boredom and lack of stimulation for people because, you know, it's not like it's not something that we are built to be in. Mm. Literally earlier today I said to you, why can't we all just admit that the perfect temperature is 24 degrees Celsius <laughs> and alter the climate accordingly? <laughs> <laughs> But now I know why that would be a bad idea. Exactly. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't be happy. No, you wouldn't. Uh, and a lot of people are not. Once aircon became the standard, so your dream of 24 degreeness, <laughs> actually a bit cooler probably, was achieved in the US, they developed basically the opposite of the comfort chart. The discomfort index. Okay. This is true. This is real. It was made by the National Weather Bureau in 1959, and it measured how much natural climate diverged from the standard aircon indoor climate. So discomfort was reframed as how much you go, like how far you go from the right way to be, which is being comfortable indoors in an air-conditioned environment. Which I think is amazing. <laughs> so there was a real, there was a, an inherent belief that air conditioning was the norm, like that was the correct way to be, and and all that thing about oh you have to purchase air conditioning, you have to pay money to keep it running, you have to design your building around it, or you have to alter your building for it. That was all just taken as read yeah. and wrapped up in this discomfort index. Yeah. In order for the index to make sense, you have to fundamentally believe that aircon is there already. Yeah, and it's it's one of the ways in which the notion of default plays into these conversations, right? What is default? Is the thing that is already there. Um, you would think that in general, default for humans is seasons. Mm. But at the time, it was not anymore. Like, default was aircon. And so, deviating from that was discomfort Hmm. I think it's just quite mind-boggling to me especially because I didn't grow up in a culture where aircon is is pervasive as in the US and other parts of the world nowadays Hmm. so to me that's just insane there are some sociological readings of this as well this phenomenon that say that the standardization of climate was part of the process of normalization of people so the aimed at nudging humans into fitting a mold in which they were reliable, productive, and socially acceptable. So, you know, you don't sweat. You are productive year-round. You don't need the siesta after lunch. Mm. And the idea that you might not, yeah, you might not get as much done in summer stopped being something that companies would work around and would incorporate into the yearly cycle of of their business. But 
instead just something to ignore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And at that point, the if you're not productive in summer, it becomes the fault of the individual rather than the fault of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Because before it would be if the company was trying to make you work really, really hard in August in Italy, Yeah. then they're fools. Yeah. But now... If aircon is not working perfectly, if it's not the solution to perfect inhuman comfort the whole time, then it becomes, uh, yeah, the fault of the individual worker, and all that stress gets put onto that person. Yeah, it's it's your own moral failing essentially mm. at that point. You know, another effect that has to do with this um, year-round presence in an office that is at a certain climate is things like what you wear, you know, that is also a component of this normalization of people. You know, office spaces have a very specific attire that is used for many reasons. So obviously it's, uh, you know, it's modest, it's looking professional, which if you think about it, that's also a construct. What does it mean to look professional? Mm. That's a whole other thing. And it's basically the same year round. Like you're not supposed to wear chunky jumper or a t-shirt in an office mm. you're also always supposed to wear the kind of like sp- springy things like long-sleeved cotton shirts and, mm. and, and dresses and stuff like that a lot of us will have seen supposedly magnanimous emails from a manager going you know what you can all wear shorts today I know. or you can all wear something that would be reasonable to wear and they go it's okay everyone i am a pretty great person <laughs> and um you know what i'm a i'm a person too i uh i i've walked amongst you on <laughs> two or three occasions and you know what i've decided today that my gift to you is the gift of temperature appropriate workwear <laughs> And then they expect everyone to go, oh, thank you. Thank you. You are truly a captain of industry. <laughs> so, anyway, normalisation of people. Yes. In fact, what sold both frozen food that we talked about the last episode and aircon in the West was the idea of control. So this fantasy of knowing precisely what you are going to eat or wear without being subjected to the whims of seasons or weather. Having a streamlined, efficient lifestyle was the dream. Um, you know, we talked about microwave meals in the last episode, but the principle is the same just with, with people. We, we mentioned office blocks. So let's talk a bit about the effects of thermal monotony on architecture. By the end of... World War II, engineers and producers of aircon units had a vested interest in making aircon indispensable. Still talking about the US, remember, this is an extremely American story. So it has been argued that the ideals of engineers, so it's the idea of control and so on and so forth, were built into the systems they installed. Aircon became a fixture of American life in the 1950s because it made it possible to build in a certain way. And then became necessary to inhabit buildings designed around aircon. So, for instance, tract houses, which is the you know suburban sprawl houses that you see in American TV, they became 
popular at that point, but they were they were flimsy, they were built cheaply and had these lovely massive windows. And all these things combined meant that they were also very hot. And that's where aircon came in. But at that point, you literally couldn't live without aircon in one of those houses. And it's the same for office buildings. Um, at the time, land in cities was very expensive. So it was more efficient to build office blocks than traditional buildings, you know, with openable windows that you can get a draft out of. Because if you think about it, those who work in the middle of an office block have no access to ventilation whatsoever. Like they would be in hell without air conditioning. The US federal government decided in 1955 that all government buildings had to be air conditioned as well. So it was a, it was a blanket application of air conditioning to workspaces. That sounds like a lot of very, very healthily sized contracts were handed out at that time. Yeah. By the 1970s, everything in the south of the US, where it's obviously hotter, including, I quote, shopping malls, domed stadiums, dugouts, greenhouses, grain elevators, chicken coops, aircraft hangars, crane cabs, offshore oil rigs, cattle barns, steel mills, and driving movies and restaurants, end quote, was air conditioned. This meant that some architectural features that were typical of the American South, so-called vernacular architecture of the American South, disappeared. So, like, front porches were the first victim, right, in a quite um, spectacular way. You know, people used to hang out on on their front porches because they were a cool place Mm -hmm. and you could just sit there. People stopped doing that. You know, people started spending more time indoors and families became more insular. That is also how the nuclear family kind of came about. So the nuclear family, and this is going to blow a lot of people's minds, is not the natural state of affairs for humans. <laughs> there is no natural state of affairs for humans. We have different ways of building families. The nuclear family, so two heterosexual parents and uh, possibly one of each uh, children, is a product of the 50s, essentially. And it happened for all sorts of reasons, but this is part of that process, right? Mm-hmm. So one note on this. We don't want to be too deterministic here. So what is determinism, you might say? Determinism just means that one cause exclusively is responsible for a certain result. So in technology, determinism would mean that technology shapes entirely how a society lives and is structured, which is in my humble opinion, an incorrect stance because technology is part of the shaping of a society, but A, is also shaped by society, as you know we, we try to talk about often on this podcast, but also the way people use technology changes the way technology evolves. So for instance, the telephone was produced at a, at a large scale with businessmen in mind and I'm saying businessmen because they were all men and then they started being sold in houses and uh, housewives started chatting to each other on the phone and you know and that's the most common use of the phone and nowadays phones are mainly for social use right Mm. and there's another deterministic thing I used a good word and then a bad word (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well uh, uh, regarding phones which is that at the moment we 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 see a lot of stuff about oh people can't sleep 
because of phones. And that's a really deterministic argument because actually people have struggled to sleep for ages, like for much longer than smartphones have been around. And there's now this idea that blue light from your smartphone is the only reason why you're not getting sleep. And there's a variety of products designed to try and help you with that. Now, it may be that blue light from a smartphone right before bed or, you know, soon before bed is playing a part in that. But to blame smartphones entirely for not getting sleep is is a deterministic argument. Exactly. So also when we're talking about air conditioning, when you can really see the the line of causality, right, from aircon to architecture and so forth, that is just part of a wider historical kind of scene. So for instance, okay, office blocks were made possible by aircon, but why were they desirable in the first place? That was because the economic boom meant that those offices were needed and capitalism meant that the cheaper the better, right? So yeah, we are not a deterministic podcast. No. We believe in free will. Yes. And we're going to make t-shirts that say so. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'll make a note of that. Thank you. So other social consequences, which are loosely related to Aircon. <laughs> no, that's not true. They're partly co-shaped. Co-shaped is something that STS people love to say. <laughs> yeah, co-shaped by Aircon, the death of the siesta in, uh, I mean, in Mexico first, but then everywhere else where it was a, a tradition, like Italy, Spain and whatever. Indian architecture, which, as we saw before, was geared towards mechanical ways of cooling and very successful at it, has changed towards more Western designs because they were cheaper and because of cultural influence from uh, the West. That being said, given the horrifying environmental impact of air conditioning, there is nowadays a little bit of interest in reviving traditional ways of cooling buildings, but it's still quite a, a small niche. And it's very expensive. So, you know, what's happening is that aircon is becoming more and more popular, really. Like the the big movement is toward the spreading of aircon, especially in Asia. So China and Japan are major consumers of of aircon. India is up there. And this is not good for the environment. So we're not going to get into that. But just so you know hydrofluorocarbons are used in refrigeration and cooling and they are terrible for the climate a lot of electricity is needed for aircon so if you could cut this down it would be great mm-hmm. and you know there's like this becomes an ethical problem at this point because like i struggle with that for instance the idea that just because we want to control everything and wear long sleeved shirts in the office we have to destroy the planet in the process that seems just absurd to me when we could all just wear shorts or a t-shirt or you know sometimes it is really hot but is it that hot all the time Mm. not really like buses in london sometimes are air conditioned in march it's like come on dude no need so i discovered that i'm not the only one that has an issue with aircon as a moral failing because <laughs> I get really angry at it sometimes like full disclosure sometimes I'm just really like I just wear a fucking t-shirt and so I'm complaining 
for the benefit of the listener, I can confirm, Eleanor does get very angry about aircon. Yes. And this episode is about why. (laughs) (laughs) This was my secret agenda all along. (laughs) For the record, I agree with her. (laughs) Um, Hey, so you know who was the first to moan on record about aircon? Well, not you. Sadly not. (laughs) But someone who I thought I didn't share a lot with, but now we're becoming good friends. Oh, okay. Um, Who could it be? Hint. Roman in air quotes, philosopher. Okay, Seneca. Yes. You hate Seneca. <laughs> I hate Seneca. <laughs> so Seneca, like in, in my opinion, Seneca was badly a philosopher. Mm-hmm. But then, like lately, I've come around to him for various reasons, mm. some of which would be apparent in the sunbathing episode. Okay. Um, because I've been reading some bits, some excerpts from his correspondence, and he just talks about what he does all day, and it's just really delightful. And also, there's more to Stoicism than I thought there was. So Seneca was a Stoic. Was a Stoic, yes. Which uh, was a sort of a, a philosophy and movement. Well, yeah, so it was a philosophy, but it was a, it was also about lifestyle. So at the time, philosophy and practice were all wrapped into one, which I think is a great idea, and I think should continue. Uh, but eventually that kind of part got lost. But it, it was quite common, like um, Pythagoras as well, for instance, who was a philosopher and mathematician, also had like a, a lifestyle component to his philosophy, like he wouldn't eat fava beans and stuff like that. Mm. He was a vegetarian. so He'd it, walk the walk and he'd talk the talk. Exactly. Or then, the other way around. And kind of literally, as in, you know, oftentimes um, philosophy lessons would happen whilst trolling around. <laughs> like that was literally a thing that happened. <laughs> West Wing style. <laughs> There's um, There was a school of philosophy called the Peripathetics, which means those who are walking around. Mm, nice. Like, it's literally what it means in uh, in Greek. And it was in, it actually in southern Italy, because at the time it was um, it was colonised by, by Greeks, essentially. It was part of Greek. Italy hasn't existed for very long. Anyway, so there was this, you know, kind of uh, idea of, uh, of a totalising philosophy that had to do with your lifestyle as well. And one of the huge things for Stoics was physical and mental resilience and being able to bear things. That's kind of a naive reading of, of Stoicism. It's more complicated than that. I'm not going to get into it. But just, just so you know, it's more complicated than that. It was about taking care of yourself in a certain way. It was about curating your own person to be a good person and to have good thoughts. By the way, no, I have to say this. Like, I read... A quote from Epictetus, who was um, a Stoic the other day, about about showering, that well, bathing, that I thought was hilarious. And it was like something like, well, I mean, you can decide that, you know, civilization is stupid and you don't want to bathe because that's just a convention. But then don't go around making out with people. Just go hide in a cave, basically. <laughs> that was his argument. He was like, what about people you kiss? Like, he literally said, what about people you kiss? What are you going to do? Which I thought was very sensible. <laughs> so Seneca... My frenemy. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time, Romans put snow and water against their houses, blah, blah, blah. And he thought it was a waste. He was like, you know, you need places to store the snow and to transport the snow and all that. And like, for what? Right? A quote from one of his writing. So that this would happen. So that quote, skinny youths, wrapped in cloaks and mufflers, <laughs> end quote, would drink snow and toss it into their drinks, add the bit of, quote, 
lest they become warm merely through the time taken in drinking. <laughs> Which is, it sounds a lot like me. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Apparently, some of these skinny youths and just kind of uh, uh, party people in Roman times would sprinkle snow on their wine to make it a bit cooler. Which doesn't sound and, tasty. And also, you're, you're, you have very strong feelings about ice cubes in white wine. Oh, uh, so I can see how you and Seneca are, are really lining up at this point. Yeah, even though like, the idea of sprinkling snow on something just really <laughs> appeals to me. But not in fucking wine. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! <sighs> I don't have an anger problem. No, no, no. no. So one, one little last bit about this uh, stoic pride in um, being, you know, adaptable and being able to withstand the heat. So we saw the US government eventually adapted aircon in their buildings, but they did it quite late on, like quite, like quite late in the game. And the reason was that they were, basically they feared that the public would mock them as wimps if they did it beforehand (laughs) I'm I'm so so glad that we've brought toxic masculinity into this now (laughs) and with reason because Aircon is also sexist which is something that I don't want to spend too much time on because it's something that is actually quite well known like you can find sources and there's everywhere like those comfort charts and the engineers were developing in the whatever 19 somethings 20s whatever it was who do you think were the in quote people that they were interviewing they were men men yeah um because they were mostly concerned about offices and and workers uh in hot conditions right yeah it's not just that there's um there's an assumption that is very difficult to shake off medicine especially or things that have to do with um experimentation on people that you can basically experiment on men and then just extrapolate to women. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, when I'm talking about men and women here, it's, it's kind of difficult to use the correct vocabulary because I believe that trans women are women and trans men are men. What I'm talking about is like the biological chromosomal sex, mm-hmm. which means that there are differences between people who are XX and people who are XY. It's a very difficult thing to get into. I promise I'm a nice person. Um, <laughs> what I'm saying is just that things like, for instance, heart attacks take a different form in XY people and XX people. Okay. But they have always just been studied in XY people, which means that it's very, it's been, for a long time, it's been very hard to recognize a heart attack in XX people. So, that is a pattern in the history of medicine. And and if you just experiment on, on, on a subset of the population and then extrapolate, that means that oftentimes you will not serve the whole population as you should. So this is what happened here. So XX people tend to feel more cold, essentially. It's biological. Not much we can do about that. Which means that in air-conditioned environments, they tend to struggle the most. Which is why, mostly speaking, since uh, I'm going to use women here because it's quite a wide category of people, like cis women, or there's quite a lot of them. When when someone is struggling with alcohol, is oftentimes is a cis woman. 
sorry there, I, I got a bit tense about this because it is a very complicated thing to talk about and we don't know a lot about it and a lot of the assumptions that are in the culture then get absorbed by science itself so sometimes things that are considered biological then they're not and there's like there's a whole polemic around this and it's very complex I also said earlier trans men are men and trans women are women I also think non-binary people are non-binary people and I love you all um, mm-hmm. just wanted to make that clear and it's even more complicated than XX and XY. Yes, exactly. Because also the expression of, for instance, genitalia and gender do not depend on that. So I've used XX and XY as a, a heuristic. Like there are ways we can orient ourselves in the way our bodies are built. This is one of those ways. It's got nothing to do with gender. And it's got nothing to do with whether you can wear a skirt. Hmm. Anyone could wear a skirt. Anyone should wear a skirt. <laughs> Especially cool. when it's hot out. Yeah, skirts are cool. Um, I mean, no, if you don't want to wear a skirt, don't wear a skirt. Just saying. <laughs> you should have the option, whoever you are. If you're out there and you're a person, we love you. The overall point is that different people react differently to temperature levels. Yeah. And the scientists in the 20s putting together this index were looking at a particular group of people that all reacted in a similar way. And if they'd widened their groups, they would have found different results. And that is probably results that they didn't like as well because of the people they were working for and the agenda that they had. Yeah. And that's true of everything. Just involve people who are not white manning things, (laughs) please. So, yes, that's... uh... That's the end of the episode. <laughs> that's, that's my message for today. Shall we do the references and then open a window in here? Because uh, we're recording in our bedroom as usual and uh, we've closed all the windows and we've closed all the curtains for the best possible sound quality for you, the listener. And we are sweating. Yes. And we, even if we had air conditioning, we wouldn't put it on because it'd be too noisy on the microphone. Exactly. The references. <laughs> And now, the references. So, as usual, more extensive list on the website. Wondercover.com. Yes. So, the argument about air conditioning and the homogenization of people in built environments is from an article by Stephen Healy on the journal Building Research and Information. Handily titled, Air Conditioning and the Homogenization of People and Built Environments. It's very good. And it has a lot of references to other papers as well. So if you're interested, you can go look things up. Refrigeration, a History by Carol Gantz is also a book that I have used. And then there's a couple of articles on Popular Mechanics and Slate on just generally the history of air conditioning, if you want to know more, both called history of conditioning so you can find them um, and finally the article about enslaved servants in the US uh, eavesdropping on plantation owners is by Eve Kahn and you can find it on Atlas Obscura which is also an excellent website for many reasons where would you go if you wanted to find out more about Seneca and Stoicism well Sanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy mate mm-hmm. it's beautiful cool Type in Stoicism, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Philosophy. It's good. Do that. It's a very honourable encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then feel free to head on over to Apple Podcasts or to Spotify and subscribe. Leave us a review. Five stars. Five, <laughs> five stars. Leave us a review. Whatever you, whatever your opinion is, leave, leave, leave us a review. And that just helps us get the word out and helps us find more people to listen to this and it makes it more likely for us to be able to make more of these. So that would be delightful. So what have we learned today? Today we've learned that if you're emailing your boss to try and get the aircon turned off, you should quote Seneca. <laughs> Wonder Cupboard. <laughs>